Welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss mystical works of literature and how they relate to recovery. We hope you enjoy today's podcast episode. Hello, this is Buddy C. Welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. We're doing an interview series, and today we have Scotty M. Good to have you with us, Scotty. Great to be here today, buddy. Any announcements, go to buddyc.org. You can look under the resources, lots of good things there. Meeting apps, meditation apps, sobriety related, all kinds of things. Take a look at that, see if there's anything there that might be a help to you. We're going to hear Scotty's story today. Scotty and I have been studying the Tao, I guess, since we started working. Yeah, a couple of years now, anyway, a little over two years. Yes. And once we went through the steps, we we look at the Wensa, I think. Yeah, after. we went through the, the steps, the traditions, and then right into the Wensa. And if you look back through some of our prior episodes, we went through some of the verses in the Wensa. There's three primary texts that I've found for Taoist philosophy. Now, we're not talking Taoist religion. We're talking about Taoist philosophy, which... Any belief of a loving God or God is love, Taoist thought will complement. And it's just describing that way of virtue from a little different angle. And there's three primary texts that, that I have found. Uh, the Tao Te Ching, that's T-A-O-T-E-C-H-I-N-G. We went through every one of the 81 verses in prior episodes. We're up to 230 or so, I think, Scotty, for this episode. So we've got all those past episodes, went through every verse in the Tao Te Ching. We went through all the stories in the Chuanza, which is the second book. He was a student of Lao Tzu and the Tao Te Ching. And then the Wensa, which the Wensa itself was translated by Thomas Cleary, Cleary in was 1990-91. And I think it was the is the only translation of the Wentz in English. It, and it's a great book. It's got a lot of good content. It's good content just to sit down and read and meditate over. It's not something that you could take into a podcast and do a good job in, in conversation with multiple people who haven't taken time to study it. But when we talk about it in sponsor, sponsor meetings, it, it goes real well. We get a lot out of it. What I love about it is that no matter what it is that's going on in my life or in my recovery, when we dig through one of the verses, the Wenso or the Tao Te Ching, I always get some kind of response. I always get some kind of answer. I get something relevant to whatever's going on in that moment. And I always come away with either a new perspective or at least some relief from what I was feeling to get started with. It always feels like what we're talking about goes in a circle, always comes back around to whatever my issue was to begin with. There's always something in there that's fresh that I can apply to whatever's going on. And I think that's because virtue or living this life of kindness, living forgiveness, compassionate living applies to everything. So there's no issue that we may have that compassion in some form is not the solution. 
but practicing the principles in, in all of our affairs, being open and willing to hearing whatever answer might be there, as opposed to shutting down and trying to solve it on my own, which never seemed to work for me. And it seems like it's more about just being open to the answer mm -hmm. rather than having to find it. Right. Now, I don't always love the answers I'm presented with, but I'm presented with something. Yeah. Well, we don't, and it's moving from us trying to figure it out to us just being open to a solution, which is totally different. Being open to it, being willing to take an action maybe I felt uncomfortable taking. Yes. Accepting a solution that's maybe a little bit different than what I had worked up in my head, allowing things to play out. That's big. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's much more about allowing than it is about fixing, controlling, for sure. Avoiding. Yeah. Yes. Tell us your story, Scott. Sure. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. I grew up in Southern Massachusetts, the older of two siblings. Great upbringing. My dad coached my baseball teams. My mom was a stay-at-home seamstress. Just had that sort of American boy feel growing up. Had everything I needed, most of the things I wanted. Everything was pretty good. But I had this feeling, the same feeling I hear a lot of people in recovery talk about, that I didn't quite fit in. I always carried this feeling of anxious fear with me. Things that maybe I didn't quite fit in with other kids. I was a little bit different. Understanding now what fear, how fear controls my life. But at eight, nine, 10 years old, I have no idea what this means. I just don't feel like I'm like everybody else. It, middle school, junior high school, and high school, when cliques start, and groups of people start to divide themselves up and into different little posses, I had an ability to put other people in each of those buckets. I could label you, I could judge you as being what the jocks or the smart kids or whatever it may be. But for whatever reason, I couldn't put myself in any of those buckets. I was the terminally unique square peg round hole. How come I don't fit in with any of these other groups? Not that I butted heads with anybody. I just wasn't 100% a part of anything either. <clears throat> I don't really remember my first drink, but I remember the first time I caught a buzz and my shoulders relaxed. I felt energized. I felt this electric energy sort of pulsing through my veins. We were listening to loud music. We were playing pool in my buddy's basement. We were going nuts. And I really felt like I was okay. No matter what was going on, I was just cool. I was accepted. This was it. Maybe later, a few months later or later in that year, I don't remember, but the first time I really got drunk, we were drinking some kind of a, I want to say a Southern comfort pre-mixed drink. It was horribly disgusting, but I remember being in the party and just chasing those drinks, wanting to be a 16, 17 year old kid that fit in. And the more I drank, the more I felt good about myself and where I was. And I kept chasing. Wow, I feel great. I need to keep that momentum. And needless to say, I got very sick on my friend's grandmother's couch and woke up in just a wreck, just a horrible hangover, the first, the first of many to be had. But never, ever in my life did I wake up and say, I'm never drinking again. From day one 
to the very end, I never got up and said, God, I'm never doing that again. I always said, this sucks, but boy, I can't wait to get after it again. High school's over. I go to college. I go to live at college in the dorms. I was a little bit younger than most of the other freshmen. I started as a 17-year-old, but I was physically, mentally, emotionally very immature. I wasn't, I did well in school, in high school, but I wasn't ready for the responsibility of living on my own in a dorm. So to alleviate that anxiety and that fear, I did what I knew I could do now, which was drink and do drugs and skip most of my classes, get in trouble at school, get in trouble with the law, and eventually just stop going to class and was asked to leave there. But I had developed this new personality. I had finally arrived. I was now ready to be who I thought I was or be this image that I was portraying. The problem was I was afraid to move back home and bring this new self-image with me. I didn't feel comfortable being this new person that was reckless and dangerous at my parents' house. So within a few months, I moved out onto my own and started working in the construction trades. And, and things really kicked off for me. Being in my early 20s, working with my boss, living with my boss, was there wasn't much that we weren't doing. We were pretty reckless. As I grew into that young adulthood and I started developing more responsibilities, having to pay bills, having a car payment, getting insurance, the things that I couldn't figure out on my own and the things that I was willing to do sober diminished. Any sort of social interactions, anything that was that required me to be a big boy and go do the things that I needed to do in life. I had to drink first. It was pretty early on. I think by the time I was 22, 23, I started drinking in the morning before work. I had a hard time getting up in the morning. I pretty quickly realized that a shot of whiskey in the morning would cure my hangover pretty quickly. So that was how I got up and started my day. I drank some warm Seagram 7 and out the door I went by you know, nine or 10 o'clock, I was a disaster again, just really trying to get out of work and go home. So even though I found myself living this new like party life where I was unable to do anything that felt serious, have a serious conversation, do any of the, the real life stuff, I was, everything had to be fun around me, right? So I'm portraying this image that if you're hanging out with me, if we're together, we're not having serious conversations. We're not talking about life events. We're going to drink. We're going we're gonna to screw off. We're just going to have a good time. And I carried that sort of perspective. That was my image. That was my clown mask was, this is how we're going to do things. Eventually, I meet the woman that I would marry. We started dating. I was in my mid-20s. Eventually, I start my own business. We buy a house. We get married, we have kids, and just more and more of those things, those real life things that I was supposed to be able to do. I felt like I, I had never learned how to live a life. I'd never learned how to be a grown up, how to do taxes, how to pay bills. And I just really isolated and became very afraid of living in the real world. So despite being surrounded by family, friends, and colleagues, and all kinds of stuff, I felt very alone. Um, the, my most comfortable place was standing in my kitchen drinking alone. The conversations I would have with my wife, God bless her, where we early on in our relationship, she would make a comment after a night of drinking, hey, you got a little bit too, 
tuned up last night or whatever it was. And I would just laugh it off. No big deal. If you fast forward to the end of my drinking career, when she's telling me that she hates the sight of me, that she used to, she, she had transcended from caretaker to pity to just outright, I despise you. I don't want to be around you. I don't want to see your face specifically when you're drinking and something has to change. You're either going to leave or this is going to be the end of it. Those are the conversations that I wasn't able to have, that I wasn't able to be a part of. I just sat there and took it because I knew what I was doing was awful. So parallel to those conversations of me just being in isolation and drinking, my excuses and my response to those would change. My tactics in drinking, oh, I'll only have one or two tonight, or I'll only drink at home, or I'll only drink when we go out, or putting some kind of limit or a cap on everything. Ultimately, every single time I failed. And then the very last card I had in my deck was after a particularly ridiculous day of day drinking and just being blackout drunk when she got home. I told her the next day that I was going to stop drinking with no plan. I'm just going to be done, but I'm going to do it after we go to this wedding this weekend. So after we go to the wedding, I'm going to come back and I'm just going to be sober. And we went to the wedding and I drank there and we came back and that's it. Now I'm sober, right? I think I made it about a week or so. We played rec league ice hockey and I used to love to drink at the rink and with my guys, with my teammates. And the first game after I told her I was quitting, I was so afraid to tell my friends that I wasn't drinking that I drank. It wasn't so much that I really wanted a beer. It was that I was afraid to tell other people that I was different now, that I had changed. Sure enough, by the next week, there was two or three beers, two or three drinks, drinking on the way. Next thing you know, I enter this very dark stage of my life where I was drinking, but hiding it completely, hiding it from my wife. So my, we would get up, get the kids ready, get them to daycare or to school or whatever. And as soon as my wife would leave, I would open the warm beer that I had hidden in my basement and just sit in my kitchen and drink. And working for myself, I was able to come up with some kind of a lie to tell a client, a customer that, oh, your product isn't here today and we'll see you tomorrow and stand in my kitchen and drink alone. Fearful to do anything, fearful to ask for help, fearful to to even just admit to my wife that I am drinking. So the the fun part is four o'clock in the afternoon rolls around. And I told myself, I'm only going to have a couple of beers, but I'm a six pack deep and my wife's on her way home and I'm terrified. So I would do stupid things like just really start pounding the water and drinking coffee, and eating candy bars, eating peanut butter, something that's going to hide my breath. And then when she got home and I'd pretend that I hadn't been drinking all day, I hid all the empty bottles and, and cans somewhere in the house. And I lived like that for a few months. And I know now that she knew at least some of those times that I was more than she led on to. But it was so exhausting. Being an alcoholic is a full-time job, let alone trying to keep up with your own bullshit and your own lies in 24 hours a day, going to bed with this sense of guilt and shame, and then waking up two or three in the morning with the sweats and being panicked and terrified. Do I have any drinks? Do I have anything hidden in the garage? God, I wish I could stop drinking, but I need a drink to get through the day. And it was just this cyclone, this turmoil in my mind. And I knew it wasn't sustainable. I knew I couldn't continue living that way, but I was too afraid to say anything. So the next best thing for me was to just get sloppy and get caught. And eventually that's what happened. I got too drunk one day. My wife and kids were away and she came home and I just was like, the jig is up. 
I've been drinking the whole time. I'm a disaster. I need help. And my first, my first attempt at recovery or my first step in recovery really was I reached out to a, an addiction counselor and on my first visit to her, I, I had a beer on the way there, like a good alcoholic. And I get there and I told her to my own credit, I told her everything and I really dumped it out. And, and she recommended that I go to an intensive outpatient program. And that while I debated that with my wife, that I should go check out a 12-step recovery program, which I did. In the meantime, I started going to meetings or I went to a meeting. In between here and there, I left the therapist's office and went right to the bar, of course. How else can I deal with this devastating news that I have a problem that, you know, that I can't solve on my own? But something felt different. Something had changed, whether that was my first spiritual experience or that was cosmic playground, I don't know. But something felt different in me. I knew that things were about to change. And I told my wife what had happened. And we talked about what had happened. And she has been nothing but support and love. I don't know if she was afraid to leave me or if she just loved me so much she didn't want to leave. Those are questions that I'm not sure I care about asking. The fact is that here today, I still am married to my wife and I still have my kids. But So I never went to the intensive outpatient program because I was afraid, because I didn't. I was afraid that it would interfere too much in my life and my work life. But I did start going to AA meetings. And the very first meeting I went to, white knuckled my way in there, sat in the back, and the gentleman that was speaking told a story that gripped my attention. It was, he had stolen his mom's car and rolled it over into a ditch. She had run away from the cops. And all this is so exciting and crazy to me. And this is nothing like my story. I'm, I'm drinking in my living room, man. This is, you're nuts. Then he started talking about what he, how he felt when he wasn't drinking, that he obsessed over drinking and that he felt like he was Drinking without his own permission was one of the first things that I heard that I can really relate to. I don't feel like I'm allowing myself to drink, but I am. I can't stop myself. So something got me that day. I knew that I needed what they were serving. So at the end of the meeting, they stood up and held hands and they were going to pray. And I wasn't having that. I wasn't going to hold anyone's hand and I certainly wasn't going to pray. So I boogied out the back door, but I was willing to go back. I was willing to see what they had to offer because I wasn't totally sure that I wanted what they had, but I know I didn't want what I had. And I knew that I was toast. That There was no way that I was going to come up with my own answer at that point. So why wouldn't you pray? When I was probably, I grew up in an Irish Catholic home. My dad went to Catholic school. And when I was probably 12 or 13, and during my punk rock phase, I told my parents that I didn't believe in God. I specifically didn't believe in the Catholic God that I had been taught to believe in. And I rejected, I rejected God in all forms, but specifically the what I thought was this ornate dog and pony show that the Catholic Church had going on. And I'll never forget, neither of my parents were mad at me. I could tell my they were d- disappointed in me, in my decision to not believe in God. But my mom said, you have to believe in something. And it didn't really mean anything at the time, but she was right. I have to believe in something. It doesn't have to be what they believe in. But I didn't pray because I was a, I didn't believe at the time that was what was going to help me, that it, it felt very uncomfortable 
And I just didn't want to hold anyone's hand, man. I didn't want to, I didn't want to be part of that. We're going to stand around in a circle and hold hands and pray. I'm like, I'm dying of this disease. I just decided I have, but you want to hold hands and pray, man. I need need help. help. Yeah. Where's no, where's the nurse? I'm in trouble here. What's the secret formula? Give it to me. I'm ready. Exactly. Where's this elixir that's going to make me better? Teach me how to not drink. That's why I'm here. I'm not here so to pray. How soon did you get a sponsor? What went from, how'd you go from there? Because most people, did you stay sober from that point forward? I did. From that beer I had after my meeting with my, my, my therapist counselor, that was knock on wood, my last drink to, to, to today. But I was so desperate to do something different. And I was willing to listen to whatever people had to say that the first couple of things I heard were find a home group and get a sponsor. Within a couple of weeks, I had joined a group. I started picking up my monthly chips there and a gentleman walked in and he raised his hand when they asked if anyone was willing to be a temporary sponsor. So I asked him and boy, was that nerve wracking for me as someone that is not not willing to engage in a grown-up conversation for me to go to somebody and you know, it's like asking a girl out on a date I had nothing but rejection it was but he said absolutely and he started taking me to meetings and we went on some commitment meetings and we went to his house and we read the big book and we did the we went through the steps and just a life-changing experience it, but it, but I was able to do it quickly because I think I had realized that my way was not working. So how many days a week were you going to meetings? Every day? No. I had, One of the suggestions I didn't take was doing 90 meetings in 90 days and going to meetings every day because you drank every day. To start off with, I was going to maybe three or four meetings a week at various times, trying to balance that into my work and life schedule. Once I found a home group, I attended that meeting all the time and then worked in other two or three other meetings a week just to mix it up, just to see what different meetings were doing, speaker meetings and discussion meetings and things. How um, long have you been sober now? A little over four years. So March the 27th of 2019 was my last drink to today. Now, what? how many meetings do you go to now? I average about two a week, sometimes sometimes one a week, sometimes three a week, but it's typically... And we, we meet once a week, so... We do, yeah, but that doesn't count. <laughs> It counts for me. It, it, it does count. I get a lot out of, and I always have gotten a lot out of not just sponsor meetings, but meetings with other members of recovery programs outside of a meeting, doing other things, doing other activities, meeting up with, for coffee, just with other guys. It really brings a peace and serenity. It brings like a camaraderie, it, being able to kind of bust balls and laugh and joke and act like regular guys out of the halls is important to me. Now we met during the pandemic. How did the pandemic affect your sobriety? It was, it was right before the pandemic. I'm the type of guy that I had my one year speech rehearsed at about two months, right? Two months is two months sober. And I'm already looking forward to standing at the podium and telling everyone how great I am and how I have everything figured out. So Right around February of 2020, all of the meetings in my district shut down and went within a few short weeks, they all went 
internet to the credit of our webmaster in our district just really took charge and put every meeting that wanted to be online and got them on there. So in my head, <clears throat> I was feeling pretty good. I felt confident in my sobriety. But to get that meeting taken away, my home group specifically taken away, was it was kicking the pants. So I knew that I had to do something else. I had to sort of adapt or die, they say. You figure it out, figure out something else to do. And podcasting was an early help for me, looking for recovery podcasts online, listening to the old tapes, things like that, any sort of media I could consume. And through one of the podcasts, that sober guy, he had mentioned some of the meetings that were happening online. And I liked what he was saying. So I jumped in a meeting that he promoted on his podcast. And that's where I met my current sponsor. His name is Buddy. I, I figured out that I had to be as involved in the online formats as I was trying to be in person. So we took on online meeting roles being we weren't making coffee anymore but somebody had to open the meeting somebody had to be there to help those meetings get online my home group eventually ended up online as well so i wanted to be a part of that making sure that the meeting was happening every week and that we were able to connect online that we're able to connect with other alcoholics new alcoholics people coming in early because i think the pandemic really threw a lot of people into addiction deeper put people in bad places i think so i met a lot of people they say you look for the you look for gratitude and everything and i'm not going to say i'm gratitude i'm grateful that there was a pandemic but boy did i meet some great people because of recovery rooms going online me too me too okay so you're in a good place everything's working for you how did you get interested in studying the Tao how did your when you came in I think you came in with the thought that your mother had planted that you have to believe in something even an atheist an atheist has some of the strongest beliefs <laughs> that yep. you've got to believe something and man they have really strong beliefs you know it doesn't mean you believe in God it just everyone has a belief so how did that change as you got sober what did you realize? How did it evolve over time? So another one of those things I kept hearing in the recovery halls was that I needed a power greater than myself. Only a power greater than myself is going to keep me sober. So I scrambled. Like I said, I rejected Christianity. So I, I needed to find something else. And my sponsor had these worksheets that he was giving me with the steps. And when he gave me some homework to do on step two, one of the questions was, who is your higher power and how did you meet him? And the actual answer to that question at that time for me was, I don't know. But what I wrote on the paper was something that I just created, something that I thought sounded logical in my alcoholic mind. And I wrote down this elaborate three-paragraph explanation of, who or what God is and what he, they, she, what they're capable of. And I just created the science fiction movie and wrote it down on the paper. And wow, this sounds really interesting and cool. 
And I showed it to my sponsor and he glanced through it and handed it back to me. And here I am waiting for a grade. Tell me how great that was. And he says, these are for you. This isn't for me. It's for you. And the reality was that I didn't believe a single word that was written. I, that's not what my concept of a higher power was. And one of the things that I think I'm just starting to figure out is that when I stop trying to figure out what my higher power is when I feel the closest to it. When I stop trying to box it in and call it this or give it this superpower or call it the creator, it's easy for me just to call God because everyone understands what I'm talking about. But I understood that there, I needed to have a spiritual experience, that I needed to be living a spiritual life to not just stay so like big deal. I put the booze down, but I'm still miserable. I'm still angry. I'm still anxious. I needed to find that balance. But isn't that the same thing we learn to do with everything? You surrendered to the idea of a higher power and you quit trying to figure it out. And all of a sudden you started knowing something you didn't know before. That, that's how it happens for me. And it's the same approach to everything in life that you took with your higher, finding your, you don't box this situation in. You just approach it from a place of not knowing, no matter what it is. And when we do that, the right answers show themselves without us. It's like the mud settling in the water. Can you wait for the mud to settle so that the right answer appears by itself? It's the same thing. So that's it's really good. It's like knowing something that I forgot that I knew. Yes. Very good. <laughs> uh, the cliche is, it is what it is. I can't, I can't draw you a picture of what I think God is, but I, I can tell you when I feel it, and I can tell you when I'm distant from it also. All right, so how did that progress? How, with time, how did, you, how did that idea of God change? I heard... I think it was in one of our online meetings that you and I used to attend where you had mentioned that you had done a podcast and that you talked about how the Tao relates to recovery. And I was just willing to hear something new. I did a little research on what the Tao was. I had no idea, nothing. An Irish Catholic kid from South of Boston doesn't know what the Tao is, but it, it fell into place for me. This makes sense to me. This just feels right to me. And I started <laughs> like an alcoholic. I binge listened to all the old episodes of the Tao of our understanding. As you guys read through the, the verses and you weren't explaining them, you weren't explaining what they meant. You were trying to relate how they felt to you and what your experience, how your experience tied into what these verses were and how they applied to recovery. And for me, it was like jackpot. This is exactly what I'm looking for. A few other alcoholics talking about how they're trying to find their spiritual path. And I was just open to hearing it. They say when the student is ready, the teacher appears. That was my teacher. That's I was ready to hear something different. And that was it. So it started with the podcast. And the doubt opened up for me just a world of other spiritual things. I really started reading a lot about Buddhism. I started researching and reading a lot about Greek philosophy and Stoicism. And 
they all flow together to me into this neat little bundle. But what I, you know, what it all comes back to me, it started with the Dowdy Ching. It started with these verses that, like I said, to start off with, when I look at these, something pops out, something presents itself to me as it's not going to fix my problem, but there is a path there. It is the way of virtue. There is an answer in here if I'm willing to read it and look for it. And it's always telling me to look within. It's always telling me to lead by example. It's always telling me to to turn the light around, to seek to comfort rather than be comforted. Though All those sort of tenets are what I pull out of there. It's like the second step. You mentioned the second step that we're restored to sanity. The power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I think that's the sanity is that we realize that we have the solution within. We stop trying to think our way. Like little children, we're dependent again and we're dependent on our knower. And that's, I love the way you phrased that. What was it that you remember something that you'd forgotten? That yeah, so, what it's I don't like. know. it must have been my higher power said that because I can't yeah, remember it now. But that's really what it is, is we're remembering things that we forgot. Yeah. Because all of that is within us already, I think. And that's what I'll just know something I didn't know a moment ago. And it reminds me on The Matrix, Keanu Reeves, the first time they plugged him in. Yeah. He said, I know whatever. I know everything. Yeah. I know Kung Fu yeah. now. Yeah. Yes. And that kind of, rem- I, when I saw that the first, I said, oh, wow. I said, that's how I feel when, even though something was putting into him, I think it's already here and we just remember it. We get an awareness. Of, oh, that's good. Okay. What does the Tao mean to you? What, how would you phrase that if someone asked you what the Tao was? What would be your answer? It's, I guess it's right in the title of the Tao Te Ching. It's the way, it's the path of virtue, right? So for me, I rejected the idea of that cosmic puppeteer that's controlling everything. But there's a way and a path that I can put myself on by doing things like acting out of kindness and compassion and humility. And I'm given back strength and joy and happiness when I act out of those, those tenets of when I do something for somebody else and don't seek something in return or try not to seek something in return, there's something given back to me that I didn't expect, that I didn't anticipate feeling. So what it means to me is that the work I need to do is to keep myself on that path, to find, if there's, to not necessarily to find the path, because I, it's not something I can look for. But when I'm on it, I know I'm there. And it usually happens when I'm acting selflessly, mm-hmm. when I'm doing for others. It's hard to describe something that I can only really experience. It's like trying to describe what a strawberry tastes like. Yeah, yeah. You just got to take a bite out of it. Right. So for me, it's a way of living. So how would you answer your question now, the question that your first sponsor gave you about what is your higher power? What is my higher power and how did I meet it? I met it by stop looking. Once I decided to become willing 
to have spirituality in my life. Once I decided that I could stop rejecting and tear down those walls that I had built. And, and so much more than trying to having to accomplish something, it's just stopping the fight. Right. Being hey, I give up. Placed in a position of neutrality. Yes. I no longer am fighting, but I'm also no longer striving to find it and demanding an explanation for myself. My God, if I don't find a higher power, I'm going to drink. It's just allowing it to be whatever it is. So I, I become closer when I don't ask it for things. When I pray, I'm typically just asking for the power, for the knowledge of God's will and the power to carry it out. I'm yes, asking to be, can I act out of compassion today? Can I act out of humility? Will you hold hands now and pray after the meeting? Will you do that now? I do. I sometimes I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. It depends on who I'm sitting next to. You know, it, it all depends. But yeah. yeah, it's, you know, and sometimes I do just sit in the back and just breathe in the prayer. When you hear a group full of people that are genuinely praying out of gratitude, it hits different. It feels different. We're not asking for money and jewels and car. I'm not anyway. I'm just asking to do the right, the next right thing. And I'm asking because most of the time I don't know. <laughs> I don't have a list. I don't have an agenda that's printed out for me in the morning that says, go. The closest thing I have is this. It's the Tao Te Ching. It's the books we read. That's telling me how to act. I think if you had to narrow it down to one word, it'd just be love. That's as yeah. close as we can get. I think so. I think so. Yeah. So do you have some verses for us? Or do you want to talk any more about that? Or no, you, man. Let's talk about some. I love martial arts, right? I practice a couple of different martial arts. And for me, Bruce Lee was the guy. He was the man. And he always used to talk about being water and flow and things like that. And I just always, this is cool. This guy is just, he's awesome. He's a rock star. He's, he's the guy. But it wasn't until I started reading the Tao Te Ching and started to see a lot of the references that are made to water and water's ability to, to fill its container, to, to rise and fall and, and things like that. I really like verse eight and I have the, the Jonathan Starr translation, but verse eight says the best way to live is to be like water. Water benefits all things and goes against none of them, it provides for all people and even cleanses those places a man is loath to go. In this way, it is just like Tao. And it goes on from there. But is there really a better example for me to model how I want to be than to just look at how water behaves when it's disturbed? You throw a rock into water, it ripples out, and then it comes back to settle. Water truly is our example of how to love, how to live in virtue. We, if we behave like water behaves, if we take the actions that water takes, will be living in virtue. Definitely. And that's mm -hmm. good. That's good, Scotty. Any yeah. other? The other water one is verse 78 that reads, nothing in this world is as soft and yielding as water. Yet for attacking the hard and strong, none can triumph so easily. It is weak, yet none can equal it. It is soft, yet none can damage it. It is yielding, yet none can wear it away. And it continues from there, but that, it gives me a great example of, of yielding, of not striving, of not forcing. We think about water as this destructive 
force floods damaging entire cities. But it's also, aside from air, it's the thing we need most to live. It's what most of our bodies are built out of. So there's this balance, I guess, between strength and yielding. And I get strength from yielding when I don't try to impose my own will. There's a lot of analogies for water, but those are the two that, those two verses that jumped out at me. Thank you. I always thought Bruce Lee was the coolest. So that's where I went with it every time. This guy's talking about water. Yeah. Any, you said, you mentioned a podcast, you mentioned that sober guy. Any other podcasts that you enjoyed with recovery and any ones you listen to now that you didn't before? I think most of what I listen to now is just I sort I don't have the regular must listen to. So I listen to the Dao of Understanding and what's this Dao all about was helpful to me in the beginning when I was trying to figure out what the heck this Dao is. That was a great one. That sober guy was awesome too. But I like to listen to like AA speakers. I like to hear guys that have a lot of time that can talk about things with vulnerability. For me, a willingness to be vulnerable is still something I work on a lot to show people who I am and who I can, what can happen. Specifically, there isn't one. I think I do, I think I do a little more reading than podcast listening. Books. How about books? What are you reading now? One of my favorites here is Powerless But Not Helpless by Buddy C's translation. Oh, that one? Oh, yeah, know. that's really good. But I like, I just, I finished one of, and now I'm halfway through another Gabor Mate book where he's really interesting, has a different take on things. I like reading, I think his name is Ryan Holiday. Oh, yeah. Uh, hey, let me write about the Stoics. Yeah, we have not talked. I don't think we've talked about this, but I would love to help someone publish a book coming from stoicism the same way that i came from Taoist philosophy because i looked and i couldn't find a book that took stoicism and applied it to recovery so if you ever want to work on something like that let me know and i'd be happy to help you publish it yeah i like you said to start off with for me the the Tao and stoicism is a philosophy but the more like philosophies and ideas that I can expose myself to and just be open to anything, even Christianity, like reading Sermon on the Mount was awesome. Hearing some of from you that has a Christian upbringing to hear some of those Bible verses read and interpreted in a way that's a lot more loving and spiritual than what I brought up to as the angry God that punishes me. I still consider myself a Christian. I think God's love, and I like to, if Christian means Christ-like, yes, I want to yeah. be Christ-like. Right. Yeah. Not Paul, but Christ-like, yes. Yeah, we should all strive for that, or not yeah. strive for that's anything. That's virtue. That's the right. way of virtue, from just a different view. Same path. Yeah. Oh, who, what, the author that you mentioned, what books, because you haven't mentioned him to me, who is that? Ryan Holiday, he's got a podcast. No, the one before Ryan Holiday. The... Oh, Gabor Mate? Yes. Yes. So he wrote In the Realm of the Hungry Ghosts, I believe it's called, which is really oh, good. Okay. He's a, He was a resident physician in Vancouver, and he was treating addicts living in like government housing. And he does a, he's a physician, so he really takes a medical approach, but he's also 
very much spiritual and into the healing that comes from within. And he does a real nice job of explaining both sides of that. And he's got a newer book that came out. It's around here somewhere. I don't want to butcher the name. So just look up Gabor Mate for his newer book, which is also fantastic. But I like to just, I read a bunch of the Thich Nhat Hanh books, who does an awesome job with the Zen philosophy. And what was the other one that you recommended to me that I... Did you do Letting Go, Pathway to Surrender? Yep. David what I did, yep. One thing that I have found is that I can get burnt out. I can get burnt out reading the same message in different formats. Granted, I'm getting the same message, whether it's from Thich Nhat Hanh or it's Gabor Mate that I need to search from within to find my solutions. But the more I consume of that same thing, sometimes it just falls on deaf ears. So I have to move out of that space. I have to read something that's just not spiritual, something that's like a a comedy book or or something that's just out of that typical vein. Otherwise, I'm never going to get what the book was intended to do because I've burnt myself out. So a lot of times I'll put on a podcast and I'll catch myself 100% daydreaming, not listening. So I've got to switch over. I've got to go to music. I've got to go to sports talk radio i've got to get out of there so that i don't lose the message so that when i want to focus and listen i can go back to it and pick up what they're trying to tell me because i don't want to miss it there's two more questions for you first how has your spiritual practices changed from when you first came in till now (laughs) when i started praying it would take me like a half an hour because i would pray for every single person that I could think of. I, you know, I'd start in my immediate family and my wife and my kids and go to my mom and dad, my brother, my sister-in-law, just everyone. I'd say, please, God, let them be happy, joyous, and free. And I would just go to everyone. But what I found was that I, was, I stopped doing it every day. And I don't want to do that. I want spirituality to be a daily practice, praying to be a daily Why practice. did you stop? It's too time-consuming. It was this massive effort on my part Also, too, I really started getting into a deeper prayer, probably right before the pandemic. So not only am I praying for, you know, my family, but I'm starting to pray for ambulance drivers and nurses, which they all deserve. But it just became this exhausting experience. And I didn't want that to be what prayer was to me. And I think similar to the books, it just started to wear thin on me. So now today, when first thing I do when I wake up is I just, I ask God to allow me to act out of compassion and kindness and humility instead of fear. And I leave it at that. That covers it, doesn't it? It does. If I feel like there's someone that I want to specifically, I don't want to use the word target, but if there's somebody that I want to just have in my prayers, then I'll put them in there. Oftentimes they come out of nowhere. I'll just be praying and all of a sudden somebody just pop into my head like, you know what? I really hope this guy feels good today or has a good day or I hope he's able to deal with the things in his life. I learned pretty early on how to pray to relieve resentments. If I find myself catching a resentment for someone, praying for them every day will alleviate that for me. Luckily, knock on wood, I haven't had a resentment I've had to pray for in a bit. For me, prayer, not that I'm trying to keep it short and sweet, but I want to make sure I do it. So it it has to be a a quiet sort of solemn 
show me the next right thing to do. Please help. Please keep me away from a drink, drug, or substitute today. Don't let me act out of fear. What readings are daily for you? Are there any that you do every day? The one I do every day is the Dow email. I read that every day. I like catching something that applies to spirituality with a recovery tone to it. Right, guys, if you're new to the podcast, you can sign up for that at buddyc.org. I'm using that sign up as a discipline for me to write these every day. And then we'll put the, they'll always be free on the website and I'll keep tweaking those, but we'll eventually put that out in a daily devotional book. They'll have 300, like the daily reflections. That's exactly what they're like. It's very much like daily reflections for the people that are familiar with that. It comes out in a bite-sized spiritual nugget that I can take. And I like being able to go back to it later in the day as well. Same with any reading, but being able to find myself maybe frustrated or aggravated with something during the day and just pop my phone back up and boom, there it is. Oh yeah, I'm not supposed to be striving to be the best tile setter in the world today. I'm just doing my job today, just doing what's in front of me today. And I get... I get a lot out of that, but I'll bounce around a lot. Like I'll meditations, Marcus Aurelius. I like reading those. I like grabbing a chapter out of the Tao Te Ching. Really enjoy reading the Wenza. Every week with you is really good. But for me, it's got to be in bite-sized nuggets. I don't like to sit and read for an hour in the morning. I like it. If I can get a quick prayer, a quick meditation, a quick reading and get going. Um, a lot of times I feel like that first action of the day is going to be based on whatever I just did, whatever reading, whatever meditation I just had, whatever prayer I just had. I want, I want to slide that into boom, into the truck and we're going. Last question. The newcomer that let's say someone's dipping their toe in sobriety. They stumbled on this podcast and they muscled their way through this whole thing. <laughs> What would you tell them if they're looking, they're trying to figure this thing out, they don't know what to do, they don't know, they have no clue, what would you tell them? What would you suggest? For the newcomer trying to muscle his way through sobriety? Just getting started. He knows nothing, but he knows this is killing him or her, and they've got to do something with it. What would you suggest? All I can do is speak to my own experience in that because that's how I did it. I think first of all is just is to harness that desperation. I was put in a place of complete desperation and was able to utilize it and turn it into willingness. Go to meetings, call somebody, show up a little early, stay a little late, do the things that scare the hell out of me. I'm a firm believer in doing things now today still that are scary whether that's doing a podcast in the middle of the day with my sponsor or whether that's doing brazilian jiu-jitsu doing something that scares me because i've been afraid of everything my whole life so i know what that feels like to just tense up and run into my first meeting and also if you keep showing up if you want to be sober and keep showing up i had to know that this works for other people And the first meeting I went into, people were laughing and having a good time and drinking coffee. And I couldn't really 
figure that out. Like, why are these people happy? Aren't they all messed up like me? The answer is yes, we are. But they've understood that we can live a happy and joyous free life. So there, there has to be a mental, a perception change, I guess is what I'm getting at. It's not all going to be easy. You're going to do some hard and uncomfortable things. But understand that things will get better. Things will change if you work through the program. So show up. Call somebody. Yeah. And remember, if you go to a meeting and you don't like it, it kind of reminds me of when I was looking for a new church when years and years ago. You go to different ones till you find one you fit. And it's the same thing with meetings. You may go to a meeting at one place and you just don't like it or it wasn't it wasn't friendly, whatever the case. Try other meetings. My favorite meetings are closed meetings that meet at church. It's not at a church. It's not that they're affiliated with the church, but the church rents them space. So it's not a, if it's at a Catholic church, it wouldn't be a Catholic AA meeting. It would be just an AA meeting without the, no influence of the church whatsoever. But you get really people who are serious about recovery more I found at closed meetings at churches than I have at clubhouses. I don't know. That's been my experience. How about you? Have you had my, that experience? My experience is actually the opposite. I really oh. didn't want to go in a church. Yeah. Um, so the first couple of meetings I went to were in a like a meeting hall. And, right. and oh, they wow. were fine. They were okay. The, my home group used to meet in a community like a rec center. And what was different for me is walking into that room, it was its own little room and the tables were set up in a rectangle. We all sat around a table and we were facing each other. So there was something about sitting in a room where we're we're all facing each other. It was, it felt more like a classroom than a church basement to me. And that was the first time I felt comfortable. And again, it was just this, I think it was more of a situation where the, the student was ready and the teacher presented itself. I was ready for a meeting like that and that meeting appeared to me. And that's where I ended up. I don't think in 20 years I've ever went to a meeting that was a circle of chairs. <laughs> Have you gone to a circle of chairs? I, Not a, I only see those on TV. I think only movie yeah. stars go to those meetings. Yeah, We set up in all kinds of different ways with different chair configurations and tables and things like that. But um, there was something about being able to sit down and look across at somebody else. And in a, for me, I like the round robin discussions. Mm-hmm. I like when a lot of people are talking about different things, except for when it came to me in the first few months. And it's terrified to say anything. But anything else to share, Scotty, before we go? Thank you. It's been a good conversation. I don't think so. I'm just really grateful to to be able to talk about things, to be able to talk about recovery, because for five years ago, all I wanted to do was drink. And then four years ago, all I wanted to do was not be miserable. Right now we're all at a place that at some point in the past, we wish we were at. And to be able to sit here and talk about recovery and talk about the Dow is awesome. It's a really humbling experience. It's just a really, a lot of gratitude today. It feels feels good to sit here for sure. Thanks, my friend. I appreciate you sharing your story. Yes, sir. Thank you. Hello, this is Buddy C. I wanted to make you aware of several recovery-related resources that I've posted in the episode description. These resources include a list of recovery podcasts, a free sober meditation app, daily recovery email, shared Google recovery calendars. Hope you put some of these resources to use and have a great week.
Thank you for listening to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends in recovery.